So we are in Acts 25, beginning in verse 23, and we're going to go all the way to 26 through 32. Okay, let's go. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time that... If, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, and now I stand here on trial because my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which twel- our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put on death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the, with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the, all the region of Judea, and, all the, to the, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, I, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for, his, <clears throat> for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with him, with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Peace be with you. Uh, my name is Chase Woodhouse. I'm one of the church planting residents here at Sojourn Houston. And uh, I wanted to start this morning by just giving you a little bit of an update on what the church planting residency is and what Sojourn Houston is in case you're a guest here. Uh, if you're a guest here, when you walked in, you walked into Sojourn Heights. So it can be a bit strange that I'm now talking about Sojourn Houston. So let me give you just a little bit of an update on that. So Sojourn Heights is a congregation within a family of church, a church family called Sojourn Houston. Sojourn Houston is comprised of five different congregations. Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, Sojourn Oak Forest, Sojourn Galleria, and Sojourn Spring Branch. Man, I did it. Look at that. Um, and all of these congregations make up Sojourn Houston. And as a collective church family, our goal is to see the gospel go forth throughout the city of Houston to saturate Houston so that the gospel becomes unignorable. So that when anyone walks in a, down a street, we hope to see a parish on that street so that they might hear the good news of Jesus. So, and I said I'm one of the church planting residents. Um, Raph and D'Amico, um, hopefully most of you know them, uh, they are actually launching Sojourn Southside uh, later this year. They're gonna start having soft launches in October. And then January 1, they're just gonna go right ahead and start uh, worshiping together every Sunday. They've got an excellent core team of like, I think it's 23 adults right now. And uh, they all live within Southside, so Third Ward and Southside, and they're hoping to see the gospel go forth there. So uh, please join me in praying for them and praying for their church. Uh, consider partnering with them. Um, 
And then eventually, I hope in 2024 to launch Sojourn Southwest. Uh, Sojourn Southwest will include parts of Bel Air, uh, Meyerland, Westbury, Braze Oaks, Sharpstown, Gulfton. And so if you know any of those areas, you know how, uh, one, densely populated it is, and two, how incredibly diverse it is. And so Sojourn Southwest will hope to uh, proclaim the gospel to the nations that have come to Houston. And so uh, if you're interested in learning more about that, uh, please come talk to me after. You can sign up. I have a piece of paper out there um, from the last time I was here. Where you can sign up uh, and I'll put you on our prayer uh, list to get updates. Uh, we're looking for financial partnerships. So if you're interested, please consider partnering with us financially. Um, so yeah, that's Sojourn Houston. That's why uh, I'm here. I'm a church planting resident hoping to see the gospel go forth. Um, but this week and next week, I will be here finishing uh, the book of Acts with you. And so um, we're going to start today with Acts, <laughs> a very long, long text. Uh, it's, it's basically the end of Acts 25 all the way through Acts 26. But even just standing over there and listening to the scriptures uh, again and listening to the speech Man, there's just so much that I wish I could unpack and we could talk about. But honestly, it would go well over an hour to unpack every little detail. I am not going to preach for an hour. I can't do that. Um, it's just not possible for me. I've tried to learn that. It's just not going to happen. Um, but there's so much that we could unpack. And so one of the difficult things when you get a really long text is you have to ask yourself, okay, what's the main point here? If I could preach just one thing to you and help you to see one point, what would it be? And that, that took a lot this week just to wrestle with the text and figure out, okay, what is this one point? But I think that the one point that I hope that we all walk away uh, from uh, having obtained in different ways is in verse 29. In verse 29 when Paul says, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. That last part especially, that all that you might become as I am, except for these chains. I think that this is a really good summary of what Paul was seeking to do. He was seeking to, here's the crazy thing, okay. He's standing on trial knowing that he could very well die. And he's not giving a defense for himself at all. All he's giving a defense for is Jesus. All he's proclaiming is Jesus. And, and so he's standing before this massive group of people who have so much power and all he's proclaiming is Christ crucified. And what he asked of them is that they would become like he is. And let me say this, Paul's a great man. Paul's not the point. When I say that this is the point of the text, I'm not saying we ought to be like Paul. What I am saying is that what happened to Paul, we need to allow to happen to ourselves. Namely, that Christ came, transformed Paul, and caused Paul to go and to live life radically differently than he did before. And so this morning, what I hope to do is, one, I want to, I want to examine what changed with Paul. What happened? I want to look at the, his testimony. Then I want to look at King Agrippa. Because really, King Agrippa to me is, is one of the most, uh, one of the saddest parts of this text. 
A man with a lot of knowledge and yet no response. And then I want to apply who Paul is in Acts 26 to us as the church. So to do that, I want to begin by starting um, and giving you just a little bit of background to how we got here. Um, because I know that the last time we, we were together, together in the book of Acts, or y'all were together in the book of Acts, it was Acts 13. And so quite a bit has happened since Acts, Acts 13. That's correct? Yeah? I'm hoping that's correct. Anyways, Acts 13 was what, we, what I remember y'all talking about. And so I want to give you just a little bit of background on what's been happening. So in Acts 20, Paul starts to feel compelled to go to Jerusalem to preach the gospel to go to Jerusalem and preach the gospel. And in Acts 20, Paul knows, he knows that he is going to be persecuted and even says, it's, very, it's, it's likely, it's possible that I could even die. And yet he feels compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and to proclaim the gospel. And so he starts going and um, on his way there, he stops in a city called Tyre. And when he's there in Tyre, gathered with the believers, here's what happens. Uh, there's a man uh, who loves Jesus, who is a prophet that comes into the room. He takes Paul's belt and ties himself up with it and says, the man whose belt, and the Holy Spirit says, the man whose belt this is will be tied up like this in Jerusalem and will be given over to the Gentiles. So once again, it's affirmed. Paul knows that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be tied up and he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. And yet Paul continues on. And as he continues on, he goes finally to Jerusalem. And what happens in the temple is a lynch mob forms. And they're actually trying to kill him right there. They're not waiting for any type of trial or anything. They're like, man, let's, let's kill this dude. Let's get him out of here. And then the Roman guards come, they break it up, and they arrest Paul. And thus begins the process, eventually, of Paul appealing to Caesar to take his trial um, all the way to Caesar. And this is kind of like the last trial before Paul is sent on to Rome. Festus is the Roman governor, and he is seeking to basically be able to ride out to Caesar why, he's being, why Paul is being sent at all. And Festus knows there's really nothing here, but i got to listen to this guy and hope to be able to piece something together. And then there's also King Agrippa, who I'll talk about later, um, who comes from a really a horrific family. Um, and so this is where Paul is. He's standing on trial, making a defense, not for his life, but for the life of Christ. And so um, if we are going to seek to be as Paul is, what, who was Paul prior to becoming a Christian? In verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. Paul was, as he continues on to say, he was a Pharisee. He sat under one of the top rabbis in the, in the sect of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the religious elites. And among the religious elites, they were the strictest. They were the ones who memorize the law totally. They would know everything about the Old Testament and their objective was to follow it perfectly. Why were they seeking to follow it? Well, Paul says, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. 
as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused. Why is it incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? This is the key here. What was Paul seeking as a Pharisee? What were they seeking to obtain? What they were seeking to obtain was a resurrection from the dead. They were hoping that after death, they might be brought to live with the Lord, kind of like going back into the Garden of Eden. They were hoping to obtain this path into a new garden to be with the Lord forever. And the way that they thought they needed to do it was by following the law perfectly. And honestly, they were very, very good at it. They were extremely good at making sure they were cleansed at all times. So they would do the ritual washings. They would make sure not to touch a dead body. They would make sure to, to not eat this type of food and to avoid this type of food. And, and really, as they continued on, what happened was uh, they, they went from having a good desire of seeking to please the Lord to seeking to be the, the elite and to kind of rule over people. And what happened to Paul is even worse. Because as the, as the church begins to form, what happens to Paul is, is, is really not far of a stretch. He's seeking righteousness that comes from his own good works. And then there's a group of people who are saying, no, it's not good works at all. It's through a man, Jesus. And in raging fury, Paul goes to persecute the church. His righteousness that he was seeking to obtain by his action produced pride. And when pride is pushed back against, fury comes. And Paul allowed this fury to boil up within him and to go and kill the church. If Paul had been here last week and listened to Pastor Dodd's sermon on, on uh, Psalm 37, he would have seen that that type of fury is not in alignment with the righteousness of God. But Paul missed this because Paul's only thought is, I got to make sure I'm doing the external things. And how do we know that this is what Paul was really seeking? Well, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this in verse, where'd it go? Excuse me. First, verse 4. There it is. Found it. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. <clears throat> as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul actually saw his zeal when he persecuted the church as a godly zeal. Pushing back, he thought, against the darkness. And he truly did view himself as blameless in following the law. So what changed? Well, as we know, Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And really, um, I believe, and I think uh, there's some scholars that would agree with me, that this Damascus encounter actually is the foundation upon which all of Paul's theology is really formed. I don't have time to go into it, but this encounter was, was incredible and very important to Paul. Because here's what's happening. Paul's going to go kill more Christians. Okay, he's not the one actually killing them, but he's got the power to make it happen. 
And so he's going, and then all of a sudden, midday, just like today, bam, the Lord appears. And he knows he's standing before God. He knows he's standing before God Almighty because he says, who are you, Lord? So one, Paul knows he's encountering God. And then when he asks who, you, who he is, Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, I want to do a sidebar real quick, okay? We're going to get back to the main point, but just real quick. Notice that Jesus doesn't say he's persecuting, that, you know, I am Jesus, you're persecuting my church. He says, whom you are persecuting. Each time Paul recounts this, um, this testimony, three times in the book of Acts, every single time, Jesus doesn't say, you're persecuting my church. Jesus says, you're persecuting me. This morning, if you are a believer in Christ and you are going through a hard time, you are suffering, know that Christ is suffering with you. He doesn't just kind of feel it with you. He's suffering with you. He is in your suffering. If you're being persecuted for your faith, he is being persecuted. Not even you. He is so intimately acquainted with us and so intimately connected to us that persecution is done to him, not just to his church. What a beautiful, beautiful little, little sentence, a hope of truth that Jesus gives to us this morning. But, so Paul sees Jesus now. So here's two things that happen. He knows now that Jesus isn't dead. He knows now that Jesus, who died on the cross, who very, very likely Paul saw die on the cross, he now knows he's not dead. And not only is he not dead, he's actually been glorified. Jesus has not been elevated, but rather his glory has been fully revealed. And the Father has honored him with a name that is above every name. Why? Because when he died on the cross, he died sinless. Personally, he had not sinned. He took on our sin. And then when he, three days later, when the Father raised him and he ascended on high, the Father was affirming that, the, that Jesus was the Holy One of Israel, the true Messiah who was going to bring forth the kingdom of God. And so what Paul sees now is that Jesus is the righteousness of God. He has been affirmed as righteous and he now holds the key to the resurrection from the dead. Now, did Paul have this all fully formed in his theology right then? Probably not. But over time, this is what Paul begins to see. Jesus holds the key to the resurrection from the dead. Jesus holds the key to righteousness. And so what does it cause Paul to do? Look back at Philippians chapter 3. Continuing on in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul has always been pursuing the resurrection from the dead. He's always been pursuing righteousness. And then when he saw Jesus, everything changed. The path to righteousness was not his own works, but rather it was Jesus. The path to obtain eternal life did not come from being a good person, but rather it came from Christ. And I can't help but wonder how many of us in here today are similar to Saul or Paul before he became Paul. Who maybe in your experience in church, for some reason you've begun to think that maybe righteousness and, and going to be with God in heaven and, and having a relationship with God comes by being a good person. Maybe you think that if you've done enough good or maybe if you make up for all the bads you've done, you can have a relationship with God. You can go to heaven. But Paul says in Philippians 3, man, if anybody thinks that they can do that, basically he says, dude, I'm better than you. Or I was. And Paul says it's all rubbish. So if you're here today and you're hoping to gain some good points with God, can I tell you good news? You can't. You can't gain good points with God. What you can do is believe in Jesus. And know that it's his righteousness and his righteousness alone that can save you. And you can accept the gift he is offering you this morning, just as Paul was trying to offer it to this court. You have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, there's a pastor that um, recently, uh, I don't, actually I don't know if it was recently, I think it was recorded a long time ago. But he's talking about the thief on the cross and how um, the thief on the cross, you know, he, he's dying. And then he finally says, Lord, let me into your kingdom. Jesus says, yeah, you're going to be with me today in paradise. And, uh, and <laughs> I love it. It's so simple and profound. But, and then the, the thief goes up to heaven. This is him kind of continuing the story as if he's imagining it. He goes up to heaven and, and people start asking, man, how did you get here? How are you here? He says, I have no idea. But I know the man on the cross said I could come. The man on the cross said I could come. Righteousness from God and life after death doesn't come from being a good person. It comes from the man on the cross that says we can come. And on the road to Damascus, Paul was told by Jesus, you can come. So this is how Paul ends up becoming who he was. And here he's preaching to this court, this massive court with, uh, when I say massive, I mean it has an insane amount of power. And he's speaking to King Agrippa. Now I want you to know who King Agrippa is. He is King Herod Agrippa II. The name Herod should remind you of a few people. The first Herod was the Herod that when Jesus was born and the wise men came and told him that he was born, he went out and killed all the newborn baby boys in the region of Bethlehem to try to kill Jesus. This is Agrippa's, I believe it's his grandfather. Yes, it is. It's his grandfather. Then another Herod uh, comes and uh, this Herod kills John the Baptist. The son of the first Herod kills John the Baptist because John the Baptist came to him and said, uh, dude, you're living in sin. You need to repent. 
and he didn't like that. So he killed him. That's the second Herod. Then a son uh, came into power, not Agrippa II that we're seeing here, uh, but this son is the one who killed James, the disciple of Jesus. And then here is the brother of that Herod, Agrippa II. Can you imagine just for a second what it would be like to stand before a ruler that has killed your people? ruthlessly, and to plead not for your life, but for his. To plead that he would see the goodness of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing this morning. Uh, this morning. He's not doing it in the morning. I don't know. It could be. But that's what Paul's doing here in this text. He's standing before Herod the, Agrippa II, and he's saying, repent. Now, Notice that Paul does say that Agrippa has a lot of knowledge about the prophets. Agrippa knew the Old Testament. He knew what the prophets said. And Paul pleads with him on that basis. You know what the scriptures say. You know that the Christ, the Messiah, when in verse 23 when it says that the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. I, I, I just want to make sure we know that. Christ is not his last name. That's his title. The Messiah would die, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. Paul knows that Agrippa knows this. And he's pleading with him to see that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the hope to be resurrected from the dead, that he is the righteousness of God. And notice Agrippa is like, you're really trying to convert me here in such a short time? Paul's like, absolutely. Absolutely. Be as I am. And I want to warn us in here as well, because I think that what, can, what happened to Agrippa is very likely to happen in our churches today, where there are people who are raised in the church and they learn the things of God. They learn the facts, but then they never actually give their life to Jesus. They never actually believe in Jesus with true faith. They believe, yeah, okay, cool. He said, he's God. All right, cool, check. But the belief that saves is a belief that causes you to leave your life behind and die. The belief that saves produces this. It's not enough to know and knowledge that Jesus is God. It's not enough. What then must follow is if Jesus is really God and if he really loves us this much that he would say, Paul, you're persecuting me. If he really loves us this much, then what must happen when we know that he is God? We must say, man, all glory to you. Here's my life. Take it, use it however you want. I'm in. That's the step of faith that's required. Agrippa couldn't do it. Why? He was so concerned with his power. My, my opinion could be totally wrong. My opinion, I think Grippa knew the prophets because he was wanting to, wanting to appease the Jewish people that he was ruling over. Not because he really believed that he needed God. And that's a danger for us today. We can come to church knowing that it's the right thing to do, hoping that our kids don't turn out really bad, and so we don't want them to turn out bad, so let's take them to church. And, and here is, is a beautiful place where you may find the life that leads to life eternal in Jesus, 
But if you're coming here just to learn knowledge and just to help your kids out, you're missing. You're missing out on Jesus. So this is a real warning for us this morning. There can be people in here who can answer every question. But maybe your heart is still far from God. And I want to plead with you to look to Christ and to surrender all that you are to him. It's so costly, but it's the safest thing you can do. It's so costly, but it's the safest thing you, you can do. And Agrippa, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And lastly, I want to talk to us as a church. For those of us who are in Christ, how can we become such as I, become like Paul? Well, let's look at his commissioning. If you know the story of how Paul became a Christian, you'll know that there's something missing here. A person, Ananias. Paul encounters Jesus, he's blind, he's led to a city, and then the Lord tells Ananias, hey, go to Paul, help him to learn, you know, heal him so he can see, and then basically he commissions Paul. Ananias tells Paul, you have been commissioned by Jesus to go out and make disciples among the nations. But here, Paul doesn't mention Ananias at all. The reason why, I think, is because Paul knows that ultimately this commissioning came from Jesus. And what Paul is trying to show the court is that he has been faithful to Jesus all along, right? Because here he says, therefore, King, O King Agrippa, verse 19, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Again, just think about this. He doesn't care that he could die. All he cares about is that have I been faithful to what Jesus has called me to do? And he's like, yeah, man, King Agrippa, I've been faithful. But, so I think that's why Paul doesn't mention Ananias. And also, if you look at the text, another interesting thing is that Paul is told to do things that, one, will possibly remind us of Isaiah 41, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 61, where these are kind of messianic prophecies of what the Messiah would come to do. So when it talks about open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of, this is, I'm sorry, this is verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Some of these things that Paul is commissioned to do is actually what Jesus does. He is the fulfillment of those things. He is the one that truly opens the eyes of the blind. He is the one that truly delivers us from, from darkness to light. So why is Paul being told to do this? I think the key, and I think Paul later thinks about this and kind of expounds on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you turn there, here's what Paul says. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice, Paul doesn't say, as though God were making his appeal through us. But rather, in verse 20, he says, God making his appeal through us. I think what this commissioning is telling Paul is that, Paul, go out and preach the gospel. But through you, Paul, I, Jesus, 
am going to make my appeal. I am going to come and open the eyes of the blind. I am going to bring people from darkness to light. I am going to sanctify them. I am going to save them. But it's through you I'm going to do it. It's through you I'm going to do it. This morning, if you have placed your faith in Christ and you are a believer, this is your commissioning. We are called to go and make disciples. We are called to lay down our lives, to lay down our desires, to lay down our personal preferences, all for the sake of Jesus. Paul was willing to go and die to proclaim Christ. He knew that suffering was going to come because suffering had already come. And yet he knew that he was to be obedient to Christ. He was to be obedient to the call of Christ to go and proclaim. Here's the reality about the United States. Um, this is from Tim Keller in his book, um, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Um, one of the points he makes, and this is not a quote, this is a paraphrase, but one of the points he makes is that historically, the United States, Americans, we are the least prepared to suffer in all of human history. We are the least prepared for suffering. And I think I would agree because I've seen that in my own life. This week was a little rough. Some things happened along the way. And, and you know what? It was a massive deal to me. When in reality, it pales in comparison to actually literally being persecuted or being killed. And yet I really struggled, and, and praise God, the Lord has helped me a lot in this, but, but I, I struggled to really put my hope in God, to rest in his ability to help any situation. I really struggled to rest in that. I wanted to take control and make it happen and make it better, and the reality is I can't. And I think that if you're like me, you will also struggle in this way. We want everything to be smooth and perfect, and life is about having everything nice and smooth and perfect and having a good, good time. Life is not about that. To live is Christ, to die is gain. This is what Paul concluded in Philippians. If we claim Christ, this life is not the end. This life is not the goal. Christ commands us to lay down our lives. Christ will possibly command us to lay down our finances. Christ will potentially call us to move overseas and to begin proclaiming the gospel to people who have never heard. Christ could call us to stay exactly where we are and to love our neighbors well and proclaim the gospel to them and maybe even be the weird people. But I think if you do it really well, you're actually the people who are weird because you love so well and aren't afraid to share why you love. Our life is not our own anymore. And the reason why Paul can say this is because he has seen the Lord. He has seen what the Lord has purchased for him, what the Lord has done for him. And he's all in. And then he knows that there are people who have not heard. And he is compelled to go. And so this morning, how can we as a church become like Paul? I am not saying every single one of us needs to sell our house and go like do three missionary trips all over the world like Paul, okay? 
I'm not saying that. I am saying that every single aspect of your lives must be laid down on the altar and given to the Lord. Every single part. Because if you hold something back, you're going to stumble. You're going to sin with it. It becomes an idol. The safest thing we can do is lay down everything at the feet of Jesus and let him command us. That is the safest thing in the world. Don't hold on to your life trying to obtain the next best job or the next best house or trying to get this, whatever it is. The safest thing we can do is to be in Christ and to be obedient to him. And so this morning, I want to conclude by saying, if, if you have thought that you might obtain righteousness by good works, or if you have been in the church and have heard everything but have not fully surrendered your life to Jesus, he is calling you this morning. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinners, come home. And for those of us who are believers in here, may we leave this space, knock on our neighbor's door this week, and invite them to dinner. And then at dinner, as we break bread and fellowship with them, may we gently and boldly and in love proclaim the good news of Jesus who has come to rescue them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness and mercy that it follows us all the days of our life. Father, I thank you for those uh, in here who do not know you yet. Father, I want to pray specifically for them. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes and their heart to the gospel. I pray that they would see the goodness of who Jesus is, that the Holy Spirit would come and awaken them, that they would see who Jesus is, and that they would glorify you, Father, for having sent Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that there would be lives transformed by Jesus. And Father, I pray for us in here who are the church, who are your bride. Jesus, thank you that you suffer with us, that you walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, I pray that you would uh, embolden us, empower us through the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and to love and to proclaim the gospel to those who do not know, come what may. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.